Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-editor of Film Comment. It's January, which means that I am in the snowy streets of Park City, Utah, reporting on this year's Sundance Film Festival. For the next week, I'll be gathering the best critics on the ground here to talk about each day's premieres on the podcast. So stay tuned and also subscribe to the Film Comment Letter to keep up with our dispatches, interviews and more from this year's Sundance. As it happens, every January, I am in Park City, Utah for the Sundance Film Festival. As it happens every year, it is very cold. I will say it's less cold than last year, which is a huge relief. And I'm here with two amazing guests to kick off this year's daily Sundance podcasts at Film Comment. Uh, And I'm going to ask my guests to introduce themselves. Lovia. I'm happy to be back on the podcast. First time in Park City. Um, I'm Lovia Jache, and I'm a critic at The Hollywood Reporter. And I'm Guy Lodge. My first time on the Film Comment podcast. And I'm a critic for Variety, so we're having a a trade critic face-off. We really are. (laughs) First of all, thank you both for making time for the podcast. I'm always, you know, I feel very grateful when I'm able to get trade critics on because I don't envy your schedules. Uh, You guys have so many reviews to file and so much to watch while here. And from my understanding, you don't get a lot of choice in what you have to review. And for me, like, that sounds so exhausting. And you both uh, look very fresh and elegant and fashionable. Well, so I'm it's only impressed. day two. That's yeah, good. right. <laughs> I'm like, uh, let's check back in day seven. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, so yeah, it is day two. Um, so we haven't watched a ton of movies yet, but we've watched some interesting stuff to talk about. I thought that we would start off by talking about a kind of buzzy title here that all of us saw yesterday, which is Freaky Tales by Ryan Fleck and Anna Bowden, who I did not know this until I I finished the movie because I kind of walked in a little bit blind. Uh, directed Captain Marvel. Yes, <laughs> they did. It's it's strange to see someone come to Sundance after making a Marvel movie with something that is. This feels pretty indie. I mean, yeah. it has mm-hmm. some big names uh, and some really great production value, but it has that indie spirit, mm-hmm. uh, as one might say. But maybe one of you, Guy, as as the debutante, <laughs> I'm going to make put you on the spot. Tell us a little bit about this movie and what you thought of it. Yeah, well, as you said, for, for Fleck and Bowden, this is them kind of returning to the indie fold after, after dabbling in studio movie making because... You know, they previously made Half Nelson and Sugar and these very kind of small, delicate uh, kind of character studies. And this is them kind of, I think, bringing a bit of kind of wham-bang studio sensibility to their kind of indie aesthetic, which is an interesting combination. It's a, it's a kind of omnibus film, kind of four separate stories that then gradually kind of weave into each other. Um, 
set in 1987 Oakland uh, with a very kind of fast and loose kind of cartoon storytelling style, um, kind of dealing with various, you know, underworld gangs and neo-Nazi groups and, you know, freedom fighters all kind of battling for, for the soul of the city. There's a kind of sci-fi or fantasy element that is sort of just thrown in the mix because why not? Um, and it, uh, it's hard to sort of like describe what the center of it is because these, these stories sort of all kind of mesh together. One is about a kind of group of, um, kind of diverse queer punks fighting off neo-Nazis at their kind of favorite music club. Another's about two, uh, young female hip hop artists kind of, uh, facing off a big rapper in a, in a battle. Um, and then, you know, we get Pedro Pascal as a kind of hired assassin doing one last job and kind of redeeming himself in the process. And all these quite generic stories coming together in something quite unusual, actually. Yeah. Lovia, what did you think of it? I think it's a, the film is still gestating for me. I, I do want to say, though, that I was really drawn and captivated by the performances. Um, I thought they were incredibly strong. I love to see Jay Ellis doing something a little bit weird, a little bit wild, and also playing a And if pseudo- people don't know who that is, Lawrence in Insecure. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and kind of just, you know, I think this, I'm really excited for more people to see this, uh, mostly so they can see his performance, right? Um, I think it demonstrates a sort of uh, incredible kind of range where he's able to be this sort of um, this stoic basketball player, uh, Sleepy Floyd, um, but then also kind of harken to, I won't ruin the plot, but some plot lines that harken to like black exploitation um, and that sort of sci-fi fantasy element that Guy was talking about. Um, I also really enjoyed the skit with the with the two rappers. Um, I, I've been on a real women in hip hop kick lately, especially because the 50th anniversary was last year. And so I've been consuming a lot of um, sort of media around early hip hop days. And it was just really, I thought it was incredibly accurate. I don't know a lot about Bay Area hip hop, but to see Dominique Dominique, um, Thorne and Normani, as we talked about uh, before, uh, kind of battle and like spit these rhymes was uh, was really fun. So, yeah, I, I have to second that, like the ensemble of performances was just so refreshing and yeah like Normani I haven't really seen her in a movie or TV role before I don't think so yeah and she was just incredible I second you know uh, Jay Ellis being one to watch out for Um, I think the last sort of notable movie he was in was Top Gun but he had a blink and you miss it role I mean he was so underserved because I've been a fan of him since Insecure and I think he really gets to be the star here. I think the film is best watched without knowing too much. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I didn't know anything and everything was a surprise. But he is sort of the black exploitation star of the film. Uh, you see him kind of throughout the film, but the last arc is really about him. And he gets to really be this like action revenge hero and do a lot of physical acting. Um I was very surprisingly sort of taken by the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I I really liked this uh, guy, what you were gesturing at, this mix of very playful and pleasurable genre homages. Um, so, you know, the, yeah, the last act, as we mentioned, like brings together like 
uh, revenge thrillers and black exploitation, and then the arc involving Pedro Costa is also a very kind of stylish hitman movie with several unexpected turns. Yeah. The section with Normani and Dominic Thorne is like it's out of some kind of hip hop movie, you know. And then the first chapter, which I found to be maybe the weakest, but also visually very interesting, which is about these Antifa punks. Um, who fight a bunch of neo-Nazis at their club, also had a very um, old-school vibe to it in a way, you know, had like, it's framed almost like a Western, though it's set in these underground alternative spaces. But, you know, these these neo-Nazis, these um, white supremacists come in and beat them up. And then this these people get together and decide to fight back and take back, you know, what's theirs. So there's a lot of uh, really clever homages and, you know, it kind of has a pretty meaty political uh, undercurrent trying, tying it all together. Again, I don't want to spoil too much, but it has strong ACAB, uh, all cops are bastards vibes. <laughs> and there is an evil cop uh, played by Ben Mendelssohn who made my skin crawl. Talk about a good villain. Yeah, which is props to Ben Mendelssohn for that performance. But the way all of that comes together in a pretty punchy kind of political critique impressed me also because I'll get to this in a bit. Other than that, the movies I've seen have been documentaries that are very literally about policing and prisons and, you know, politics. And I've been feeling kind of wearied by them you know they're like sort of like just hitting you on the head with a hammer unsubtle formally not very interesting very convinced of their own importance which is like I feel like a trend at Sundance the important documentary and of course this is not a film that you'll come away with with like information about policing but it was just fun to see it deliver that message with so much style and pizzazz and entertainment, which has really been missing from my other viewing so far, which again, it's day two. But yeah, that was that was kind of my feeling. You know, Devika, I'd be curious to hear why you thought or your thoughts on that first um, chapter without spoiling too much, because I did what I did like about it was um, sort of its presentation of... Um, so, you know, the kind of problems of trying to like live your values and your ideals. And I thought that was really well done in a really earnest kind of way. Uh, but I'd be curious to hear about your thoughts on the the weakness of it. Yeah, I don't, Guy, do you want to uh, chime in? Because you and I actually chatted a bit after yeah, the movie yesterday. I, yeah. The film took a little while to kind of win me over because mm-hmm. the first two chapters, I was kind of enjoying individual elements you know that as you said kind of some of the visual styling and in the second chapter in particular I really loved kind of Normani and Dominic Thorne's kind of chemistry together and their kind of very playful kind of interplay and yet I sort of felt like I was watching just a whole lot of stuff that wasn't really kind of cohering and didn't the, the rhythm to me felt kind of off despite how busy it is on screen with you know all these animated interludes and you know so much music and image and you know energy being kind of thrown right at you um but it's only in the kind of last two chapters which then kind of contextualize the first two um that I started to realize there was a kind of larger plan and then I um and then I kind of settled into it more and and it, I think it is really fun and and as you say it does kind of have a message that it doesn't take too seriously but you know it's there it's you know it's not it's not subtle about it but it's not like you know lecturing you either 
Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why, I mean, it went down like gangbusters oh. last night in, in the Echoes yeah. Theatre. It's just a, a classic Sundance crowd pleaser. Right. I, I, I was thinking like, this is the kind of movie that is a Sundance treat. You know, yeah. you watch it with a big crowd who just, and you get all those reactions, yeah. audience reactions. Um, to respond to Lovia's question, uh, you know, Guy and I chatted a little bit and I, I share some of the same feelings around the first section, which is each of the chapters uh, really captures a subculture of, you know, Bay Area um, life in the 80s. You know, I, I don't know how much of that is realistic. It yeah. seems very inspired by media as well, the portrayal of these subcultures. And I found that the first one was the weakest in terms of really capturing a subculture. You know, the second one really, I felt like I had stepped into the world of yeah. aspiring underground hip hop artists. And the third one, you know, with Pedro Pascal, again, like really embroiled in this world of criminals and hitmen. And I really didn't, felt like it was a bit superficial uh, in terms of representing the punk community and that it was narratively the weakest in the sense that it was a setup for a punchline right. that came, yeah, at, the that came end, at the end, That's you know, true. as opposed yeah. to having a really compelling narrative arc of its own. And honestly, it made me wish for a feature length movie about that yeah. group of people, those mm. kids, uh, those clubs in the 80s, yeah. you know, uh, and the actors in that are also fantastic yeah. um, in the first section. And But their character's purpose only really kind of gets revealed much later, later on, which is why yeah. you kind of have to play a bit of a waiting game for, for that mm. chapter to pay off, I yeah. think. Um, maybe we can move on to some other movies. Uh, Guy, I know you saw a movie yesterday that you were quite intrigued by, a kind of unusual zombie uh, movie, as you described it yes, to me. Yes, uh, uh, actually not yesterday. I saw it at a pre-screening um, last week. But it's called Handling the Undead. It's a Norwegian film in, in the World Dramatic Competition um, by a first-time director called Thea Fistendal. I think I've got that right. Um and the, the the kind of hook is that it's Renata Reinsver and Anders Danielson Lee again. So, but if you think you're getting a you know replay of Worst Person in the World, prepare to be very surprised. Beginning with the fact that they don't actually share any screen time, but um, it's a very very quiet, very delicate zombie film, which sounds like a contradiction in terms, but um, it's kind of takes place over. I feel like the timeline is very contained it's about two days or so um and there's a kind of uprising of of the kind of waking dead who sort of appear fairly unceremoniously in this sort of small industrial norwegian town kind of accompanied by sort of uncanny happenings of you know electrical power cuts and and whatever else but just as you're expecting it to sort of turn into a kind of horror film and a you know zombie feasting extravaganza the, the unexpected thing is that first they seem to have no violent intent. They just kind of exist in the world and return to their homes and their families and kind of reclaim their place in the household without, you know, being alive in it. Um, and that's actually very moving and, and watching how, in one case, a family sort of deals with their, their mother suddenly being kind of present again. And, ah, interesting. Um, an elderly woman who's very lonely, overjoyed that her kind of lesbian lover has returned, um, but not getting any kind of companionship mm. uh, back from them. And and it's a it's a slow burn until 
you know, until zombies finally start behaving slightly more like zombies do. But there's a real kind of poignancy attached to to that because it it kind of makes you wonder, well, if if zombies were just kind of passive beings, maybe there maybe there would be kind of something quite therapeutic about having them around as a as a kind of interstitial kind of grief kind of handling process. A blow up doll? <laughs> exactly. Um and and I, I was actually very moved watching it because I, mm. I lost my dad last year and it, it kind of oh, made sorry. me wonder, would it be better to have, you know, to have a loved one's body there yeah. as some kind of presence rather than a complete absence? And, and I think the film kind of invites you to, to kind of ponder that and, and, and draw your own conclusions. And it is, as I'm, you know, describing this, it, the exact opposite of, of what I expect from any, any zombie film. Yeah. It's, it's very, and it's, beautifully filmed in kind of these you know shades of kind of calico and khaki and sort of half light and sort of very kind of softly whispery atmospheric and uh, I, I I was very taken with it as you're describing it I'm thinking of this movie I don't know if either of you have seen it called Marjorie Prime starring John Hamm yes actually which was here a few years ago wasn't I, it I, I didn't think. see it at Sundance yeah. uh, I think it was 2016 yeah. or, or something it's been it's been a while but I think there the premise was that the memories and consciousness of a person gets uploaded onto yeah, some tech... Yeah, kind of AI kind of thing AI almost. ghostly yeah. device persona hologram that helps people grieve yeah. and kind of move past those initial stages of grief. So that yeah. just came I to my mind. I hadn't thought of that, but there is kind of a, ther- a, a, a thematic match there. And, and yeah. it, you know, Handling the Undead is, is a zombie film that is first and foremost about bereavement and grief. Yeah, well, I'm going to try and catch that tomorrow because you just described it very winningly. <laughs> yeah, me too. That sounds fascinating. Um, I, transitioning probably to a less solemn film, I yeah. think. Uh, Skywalker, Skywalker, a love story, not love about story. Star Wars? Not about Star okay. Wars. Um, yeah, this is a sort of a blunt transition, but Skywalker is a love story. Um, it's directed by Jeff Zimbalis, and it is a, a sports documentary, a love story, um, a kind of investigation into like why we are interdependent creatures and need to trust one another. That really surprised me from the moment that I sat down, the moment the film started playing, because one, I didn't really. The premise is that these two Russian daredevils, as they're described in the in all the the literature, um, embark on uh, an adventure to climb the tallest building in in the world, which at the time of filming was um, a, a mega skyscraper in Malaysia, and they're doing it to save their relationship. And so, going into this, I was like, this just sounds like people really opting into danger for no reason. <laughs> Um, I probably won't enjoy this, but I was really pleasantly it's, it's surprised. Not, it's giving fire of love. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, I mean, that's yeah. what the description thinking... made me think of. Yes, yes. Which is, for people who may not know, uh, a big kind of hit at Sundance a couple years ago, yeah. which was about these two French volcanologists, a couple who's were dedicated to studying volcanoes and actually died at a volcanic eruption and this kind of the uh, this you know daredevils you know yes, in love romance. Who, yeah yes no definitely I, I i thought about that i didn't include that in my 
in my review because when I was watching it, I was really thinking about Free Solo and um, mm. Man on the Wire, which is that that documentary that came out maybe 20 years ago now. Oh, no, not not 20 years, but more than 15, I'm sure. <laughs> um, and it premiered at Sundance, and it was about the French... Um, French guy who tra- who walked between the World Trade Centers. Yeah. Um, so it's similar to that in that there's this, this extreme appetite, right, for um, doing what most people wouldn't do. And so the film chronicles the individual careers of these, um, of the couple. And they are actually called rooftoppers, which is a term that's used to describe for people who recreationally scale buildings um okay. and puzzling po- <laughs> to me but yeah. it is, is an incredible su- you know speaking of subcultures <laughs> as we were talking about it's an incredible subculture uh-huh. and i think one of the strengths of this documentary is how it's able to invite novices into that process it explains that there are real conventions and rules um around uh what it means to be a rooftopper right it's not just this sort of risk-taking endeavor so anyway we have um these two characters, two subjects, um, Angela and Ivan, who start their careers differently. Ivan is very popular on Instagram. Um, he is a sort of brings a, a professional air to to uh, rooftoping, and Angela wants to break into the into the business, so to say. But she's a woman, and so she's initially rejected because sexism. But she finds a way to make it really artistic because she was raised um, by circus performers. And so she, when she scales these buildings, she often poses in these sort of like um, really uh, balletic uh, poses. And she gets a lot of followers, and then her and Ivan meet up one day because of a sponsorship. Um, opportunity and they fall in love and they oh travel God, the world an influencer love story influencer love story and then they the relationship goes through um, some sort of speed bumps and you can really tell I think one of the things I really liked about this documentary is that you can really tell that these two people love each other um, and I think that's where the strength of this documentary really comes from mm. is the fact that it is quite easy to mock the kind of influencer culture of world travel not thinking about anyone else just going to all these countries and doing whatever and the NFTs and the like counts and the followers but I think it's it's a really universal story in that Angela really has trust issues and Ivan clearly becomes just obsessed with her and loves her so much and becomes so worried about her safety that he starts to consider, what if we don't do this anymore? Mm. And she's like, you're trying to limit me. And so this tension sort of builds up and their relationship um, really becomes a space for them to negotiate their trust issues. Mm. Um, And the documentary has incredible, incredible footage that's taken with their GoPros So it is a bit anxiety inducing. I wouldn't recommend this for people who will have any fear at all of heights. (laughs) The angles at which they take some of these these shots, I was like, oh, my gosh. Um, And it builds a real suspension and there's real there's real stakes. Right. I mean, the life and death stakes of of every single expedition, but also the stakes of their relationship. Um, there, there are things about it that I didn't love, which is that I think, you know, as we talked about earlier with Sundance documentaries, there's a bit of. A conventional editing style there is a, a lack of trust in the viewer and so a lot of the obvious messages are then supplemented with voiceovers that I found um, tipped a bit into cliche but but overall when I when I when I left I was like oh that was that was a really really good documentary that I and I think it will have a life outside of this festival mm-hmm. um, mostly because of that free solo comparison um, and I think people are just really attracted to 
subcultures of extremity. <laughs> what studio is behind it? Or I, so I think it's, it hasn't gotten a distributor yet. So I'm hoping that interesting. You know, yeah, yeah, because one sort of complaint I have is so many documentaries that now you see at Sundance, and yeah. actually true of many festivals, are already you know already yeah. have distributors. Yeah. yeah, and especially to a lot of streamers. So it yeah. it feels like you're attending a preview yeah. for streamers, and that was the case. I saw Girl State yesterday, which is, I think, another sort of um, anticipated title here because uh, it's by the same directors who made Boy State, which premiered here a couple of years ago and made quite a big splash. The directors are Jesse Moss and Amanda McBain. And this is sort of the women's version of that film. So the documentary Boy State was about this program run by the American Legion, this organization called the American Legion, which runs a summer kind of leadership and government program in several states in the U.S. where high school juniors are invited for this um, sort of residential program where they have to form a government following all the democratic procedures that kind of are modeled on the real American government. And so Boy State was about the boys, a Boy State program in Texas. And Girl State is about the women's version of the same program. Um, uh, uh, this one focuses on a program in Missouri, a Girl State program in Missouri. And all of the programs are gender segregated and happen separately. But this particular one, the one in Missouri, which is the subject of the Girl State, uh, th this movie, uh, actually happened for the first time in the history of this program. Both programs happened on the same campus at the same time. They were still separate programs, but they were happening together. And so that becomes a big theme of this film is that the participants of this Girl State program start to sort of notice and pay attention to the differences between the boy state and the girl state programs in Missouri. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I'll just say, uh, so the premise is, you know, is pretty obvious from the way I described it. They follow this group of girls, you know, some of them emerge as kind of protagonists as they mingle, uh, decide what kind of roles they're going to play in this uh, simulated environment. There's people who are running for governor of the state. There are people who are running for attorney general, people who are want to be on the Supreme Court. And there's kind of an appointment process for the Supreme Court bench, again, to like model like real world stuff. And the girls are like come from different parts of the political spectrum. I mean, they're high school juniors. None of them have fully formed political views yet, but some of them say they lean more conservative. Some of them are really progressive. And it kind of ex explores how they make friendships across these differences, but also kind of, you know, um, give life to their political aspirations. Many of them already have aspirations to work in government and also kind of get a sense of what politics works like in the real world. My issue with the with this documentary was that, again, like what, you know, how we've been, uh, what we've been saying is that it's just edited and um, kind of prepackaged into a very crowd-pleasing, slick, you know, broadly appealing film. And so I went to it really hoping that, um, I went to it really hoping that I would, get to learn what teenage kids in Missouri 
you know, really think about politics. And a big focus of the girl state program and what's on the mind of all these girls is the Roe versus Wade yeah. decision, which during the program, it was leaked that it might be overturned. And six days after the program ended, it was overturned. So that's on everyone's minds. That's the hot button issue at this girl state program. And you get a little bit like different girls have different opinions, but I don't know if they never actually get into serious political discussions or if the camera doesn't seek those out and instead stays on the like personal stories about growth and getting over social anxiety and making friends, which obviously makes for a more palatable viewing experience. Uh, Do you think maybe the filmmakers are trying to protect them from saying things publicly that they could be kind of criticized for that that thought crossed my mind i mean these are minors you know they're high school juniors and i wouldn't want any of them to kind of be put in that position they're young people they're figuring out what they want but at the same time uh, i don't know i just wish this just seemed like such a predictable portrait of this Mm. sort of program i mean i feel like if you're going to make a documentary about it maybe getting a little bit giving us a little bit of a little bit more insight into where these Mm -hmm. or even how their political opinions are formed um i just felt like it was very superficial on that front and what was interesting is that it seemed to me from watching this documentary that for teenage girls the experience of being a woman and the kind of rallying cry of fighting sexism supersedes all of their political differences. Yeah. And you kind of see that play out, you know, during their, when the uh, candidates for governor give their speeches, there's a kid who gives like a speech focused on issues, you know, racism, incarceration, climate justice, right? Like fighting white supremacy. I thought she was incredible. I was like, who is this 16 year old? And then you see a girl come on stage and she gives this really uh, dynamic speech about being told to smile by men and, you know, being made to feel less by men. And like she just sweeps the crowd. And so my sense was that for women that and I'm sure like this is different for like a men's program where being male is not that sort of like a marginalized identity that brings you together, that that almost papered over other political differences but i couldn't tell if that is the reality of how teenage girls are in missouri or if that was a function of the program or if it was a function of the filmmaking that's the angle they were pursuing yeah uh lovia i know that you have to run for your next screening which is just how these festival podcasts are people jump in and out uh, but we'll catch you again soon on another podcast. Yes, and it was I great to have so. you. Oh my God, thank you so much for inviting me. Yes, I'm going to see American Society of the Magical Negroes. Um, I'm seeing that tomorrow. So maybe we'll talk yeah, about that in a couple of days. Let's talk about it. Okay. All right. It's interesting you say that because aside from the kind of foregrounded feminist angle, uh, your issues with the film kind of mirror some of the problems I had with Boys State a few years ago, which I thought it was a very kind of engaging, brightly packaged, entertaining documentary, but also didn't kind of dig dig deeper into yeah, into the kind of implications of of these kind of unformed politics and and what they might grow into. And I remember thinking at the time that I wanted a, a much more kind of institutionally oriented filmmaker like Frederick Wiseman to kind of just stand back and just watch and record what they say and and show it to us 
in in a way that felt less kind of selected and compiled and put together. Yeah. Um, and 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 yeah, because it it's such an interesting subject, yeah. and the the kids themselves in Boys State were certainly kind of full of things to say and and full of life. But I I did kind of keep sensing that the film's intervention and I haven't seen Girl State yet yeah. but it it sounds like there might very much be twin pieces yeah, yeah. and again I, I want to acknowledge that these are minors they're kids um, but at the same time you know I think you got to justify a documentary uh, if you're making a documentary about the subject make it in the best way you can oh. and it's exactly what you're saying I just felt the film's shaping crafting selecting interventions and you know the the girls were also charming I I was a debate model UN yeah. kid so I saw myself and I realized how annoying my personality was back then <laughs> or <laughs> but, Tracy Fleck <laughs> I mean there's actually um there is an insert of uh, Tracy Fleck in like Legally oh, Blonde really? in the film where one of the participants who says, you know, she's really passionate about government and politics, but she's not really good at social skills. So she watches Legally Blonde to try to prepare <laughs> herself. It's very sweet. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, I'm genuinely very curious what teenage girls are thinking about today's world and politics. And I didn't come away from the film with a better understanding of that. Yeah. And I think you're so on the money, like a filmmaker like Wiseman or even someone who really knows how to capture a system. Like it doesn't have to be about these girls and their individual arcs and mm. their highs and lows. This can be a portrait of a system and it goes there when the girls start realizing these differences between boys and girl state and start sort of embarking on a bit of an investigation. But even that doesn't go so far. And I wish I wish the lens zoomed out yeah. a little but I get it. I mean, I get it's that shaping that gets a film like Girls State a, a lovely deal with Apple. Is it Apple? It is, I think. yeah, exactly. Yes, it's an um, Apple As opposed to, dark. you know, being shown in two theaters for three days by Magnolia <laughs> or whatever. Uh, and I love Magnolia, no disrespect. But, no, no, um, respect. But yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, that's kind of what it takes to, to sell a documentary these days. And I. I, I wish I wish that weren't the case. And I'll just say a few words on another documentary I saw, but there'll be more to say on that. Uh, Richard Linklater has a three-part episodic series uh, here at Sundance called God Save Texas, which I was very intrigued when I read the description because it seemed so unlike what I would expect from Linklater. It's about the prison industrial complex in Texas. It's about the criminal justice system. And I was very curious to see what sort of angle he would take on it. So I saw part one today. Uh, I'll see part two and three in the coming days. But I'll say that I was really moved and surprised. Um, it suffers from all the problems we've been talking about. It's an HBO uh, documentary films production. It's cut and edited in this annoying way with like too much scoring. I find that so just, you know, grating. But this is Linklater really showing us a part of his worldview and his personal life and events that have informed that have informed him and, and his filmmaking in a way that I haven't seen before. And so it turns out that Linklater grew up in a town, Huntsville in Texas, the place in America where I believe the most executions have happened today. Yeah, uh, it's somewhere where the death penalty is still alive and thriving. 
and where the prison is the biggest industry. It's a prison town. And many people that Linklater went to school and college with either ended up behind bars or working at the prison. He had a stepfather who worked at the prison. He had a stepfather who uh, served time. His mother did a lot of activism around the prison. So you really get to see what a personal connection he has to the subject because of the way in which he grew up. And he also includes footage from a film he tried to make, but which never got off the ground, like in 2002 or something, you know, decades ago at this point, that was about... uh, an execution of a man who people believe to be innocent. And there was a lot of controversy and protest around it. So he includes that. So it's very personal. And I found that that made it really moving. I mean, I've seen documentaries about the prison system and the death penalty before, but the way he does this, you know, it's not your, you know, archival footage and talking head interviews and this kind of cold analytic. It's just so, he puts, you see him in the, shots frequently he's going and visiting his childhood home he's visiting friends who were behind bars you know he's interviewing locals and talking to them about his childhood and how their childhood compares and um i frankly cried several times i mean it just makes it so that the emotional impact of the films he interviews people he knew who were wardens who you know witnessed hundreds of executions and then it took them that long to realize like this was something completely unacceptable. So I believe that each of the uh, chapters focuses on a a different aspect of the criminal justice system. So I'm curious to see what the other two explore. But yeah, you know, it's just a very... And he acknowledges that in at the start of the film, like, I've made movies, mostly comedies, when they've been about my hometown and my upbringing. So this was a project that his friend, who's the a producer, uh, Lawrence Wright, sort of, uh, who wrote a book called God Save Texas, kind of encouraged him to make. And it's it's really interesting to see. And a lot of um, scenes from his films feature, like, are cut in to make certain points or add color to certain locations. And yeah, it's... um. I'm really curious to see where the rest of the series goes and I'll report uh, back. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Uh, it's quite fun. We've got the sort of two sides of Rich Linklater at Sundance this year, <laughs> don't we? Because he's also got Hitman playing here, which was, I think, premiered in Venice last year. And it's such a kind of purely kind of fun, silly, crowd-pleasing yeah. little kind of doodle for him. I thought it was a great time, but kind of sounds like the complete opposite of this. Yeah, it's- and I enjoyed Hitman a lot. And this is not really a fair complaint, but I did feel a little unsettled by the lack of any political context to what happens in the film. Because the film is about a guy who entraps people into hiring a hitman and then they go, you know, go to jail or go to prison. And I did feel very unsettled by that aspect of the film throughout. It it takes a very darkly playful, but still playful angle towards this frankly disturbing yeah. disturbing phenomenon of policing and you know criminal justice so it's actually very interesting to think about that as a counterpart yeah. to the series yeah it's interesting because you don't i didn't really sort of think about that while i was watching it because it's so kind of pacey and funny and glenn powell's so dreamy and then as you say kind of once you think about it afterwards you're like wait a second this is actually quite dubious stuff. Um, and it's, you know, good to see kind of his his conscience coming out in, in one project, at least. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, and I, but I just have to say, you know, there are these, there's a scene where he's talking to, you know, Larry Wright and he says, I was very struck by this. He says one fourth of the town's population is behind prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, behind bars. He says one fourth, a quarter of this town's population is in prison. That's huge. Right. And I was just feeling that sinking in and suddenly it cuts to like a country fair with, you know, this kind of very jingly music and this sort of edit like formulaic editing where you go from like one location to the other and you see some b-roll and then you you know the music signals the change of tone i just i'm i'm really hoping i see some documentaries here that push against that and take uh a, you know a less heavy-handed approach especially to a subject like this i thought it was very jarring to see those kinds of segues I have seen one documentary here called A New Kind of Wilderness that's still pretty conventionally constructed, but it it does kind of wrong-foot you with this initial montage of what looks like complete kind of Instagram aesthetic um, sort of life ideals. Uh, And then there's a kind of record scratch moment where the kind of darker, sadder kind of truth of it is is revealed. And I was at least relieved to see kind of a, a Sundance documentary that, surprised me five minutes in because that does not always happen (laughs) totally so uh we're almost out of time but i i was wondering if you'd say a few words about a film i believe you saw yesterday called ghost light which a lot of people have been excited about i haven't seen it but i'd love to hear your two cents yes it's the new one from kelly o'sullivan and alex thompson the kind of duo who made saint francis a couple of years ago which i thought was a lovely exemplary kind of little indie character study i thought it was kind of note perfect um so i was really really looking forward to this one and it's a story it kind of pieces together a lot of elements that sort of sound like sundance filmmaking 101 there's a you know a grieving family um there is a kind of patriarch who kind of hides his grief from his family and and discovers an emotional outlet in community theater of all things um there is you know a a wayward rebellious teenage daughter who you know can't be heard by her parents it sounds yeah it, it it sounds very kind of hackneyed and formulaic and sundancey and i was hoping that you know the those filmmakers would kind of surprised me with their approach to that material. I'm afraid they don't uh, entirely. I think We always go um, in with the... <laughs> yeah, there's just no escaping a certain level of kind of contrivance in the script in which, um, you know, the the family of a, uh, of a boy who killed himself at 17 um, kind of find catharsis via a community theatre performance of Romeo and Juliet of all things which is terribly on the nose um, adding to the fact that they're kind of locked in a legal battle with the um, with their son's girlfriend's family so you know two families both alike in dignity etc etc and I just wanted to kind of clear away all that kind of slightly corny paralleling and, and metaphor because there is a kind of actually very moving story underneath it all. Um, and it's actually very beautifully acted, in particular by the um, leading man playing the kind of patriarch called Keith Kupfer, who's, I think, incredibly 
moving and actually made me made me believe this rather kind of artificial arc that the that the script kind of contrives for him but i i just at every turn just wanted the writing just to just to step back to leave them alone a bit to stop kind of inscribing and and explaining everything for us and i was just very surprised to to see that from from these filmmakers um i was also kind of slightly disturbed by the fact that the uh, the dead boy's girlfriend who's a young black woman and her family are very much sidelined in the whole thing we never get their perspective on matters um and i thought that was a strangely kind of false note and otherwise quite emotionally generous film um so it's 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 not a disaster but to me it is a kind of slump from <sighs> from saint francis well when you're watching four movies a day a slump feels costly <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> well and for, on that Unfortunately, uh, not uplifting note. Uh, we'll wrap up. I will but... say many in the room loved it. So, okay, you know, yeah, your mileage so... <laughs> may vary. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, I, I should add all opinions expressed on this podcast are entirely subjective and do not claim to any <laughs> universality or objectivity. It is criticism after yeah. all. Uh, but thank you, Guy. Uh, it's been having such you. fun. Yeah. And just day two. So we'll check in again in a couple of days. Absolutely. And, uh, if we haven't frozen into the background. Exactly. Somewhere. All right. Well, I will. I release you to go to your next screening and, and talk to you soon. Right. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. 